This is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him lower, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the, bir- the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Please pray with me as I ask his blessing on us this evening. Lord God, we come before you as a group of men and women who are seeking meaning in our lives. We live in our day-to-day lives, sometimes lives of ordinariness, feelings of being kind of mundane and, and bored. I pray, God, that as we look at this passage and we examine the, the ideas that are in it, as we think about our daily lives and what you call us to do in our ordinary lives, that you would open our eyes, that you would broaden and enlarge our hearts, and that you would open our ears to the things that you have for us. To glorify you in every aspect of our lives, to bring our entire being, our entire lives before your throne, to offer it up to you. Not in some sort of overly spiritualized or dramatic way, but Lord, just in ordinary mundane faithfulness. I pray that we would read this word and it would impact us, that we would see, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would also be nourished and encouraged and fed in our souls from it. I pray specifically for myself, God, that you would send your spirit upon me to to help me to talk about these things in a way that is true and good and encouraging and uplifting and clear for these students. Lord, I thank you for each one of them. I thank you for bringing them here tonight. I pray that you would bless them and keep them, no matter what they're going through, no matter where they're at right now. Lord, I pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. In one of the later episodes of The Office, I think it's called Secret Santa, it's a Christmas episode, Dwight finds out that uh, his, his secret Santa starts sending him uh, pieces of little machinery, like anonymous things, like he gets a gear in the mail, he gets a bolt, he gets a little metal piece of metal plating, and uh, basically he starts to realize that it's, it's pieces to a machine that he has to figure out what it is and build on his own. And he's trying to put it together, but he's, he's having trouble. At one point in the episode, he thinks it's like a rubber band gun. And eventually he puts all the pieces together, but he still can't figure out what it is. There's like a little, there's a couple gears and like a crank that he can turn. And he puts all the pieces together. He still can't figure out what it is. And then Michael, his boss, brings him a bag of walnuts and says, hey, you know, here you go. I'm sure you'll figure it out. And what Dwight realizes is it's a nutcracker. And he, you know, cracks the walnut. And he gets really excited once he realizes what it's for, what it's designed for, what it's built for. He's like, oh man, I can use this for so many nuts, macadamias, Brazil nuts, pecans, almonds, clams, snails. 
Um, And he's really excited. Dwight has had a complicated machine disassembled. And eventually, right, because uh, he gets a little bit of help, a little bit of wisdom from someone who knew what it was, who who gave it to him, who who in some sense had designed it for him, that he starts to realize what it's for. Once he realizes that, he begins to understand its significance and its meaning. And then he can actually enjoy it and use it the way that it's meant to be used and benefit from it. What I want you all to think about, think about this. We live in a world, and we have lives, that are infinitely more complicated than a DIY, like, nutcracker machine thing. There are far more moving pieces in this universe we live in a world that is vastly more complex. We observe pieces of this world that, in move, that move in ways that are fascinating, beautiful. We see things ha- that happen in the world that are sometimes scary and confusing. Whether it's natural phenomena, the movement of stars and planets across the sky, the tides, the animal kingdom, complex political systems, societies, cultures, wars, and we look at all these things, and, and, and we look at our lives and our place in them, and we're moved to question, you know, what does this mean? What's it for? How can we feel in the midst of all this grandeur, in the midst of this, the bigness of existence? How can we feel like our lives are significant? And I know, I know some of y'all, like, think about this and struggle with this. I know that some of y'all consider these things. How can we find significance in our lives? How can we find meaning in our lives? And I know that some people, like whether it's y'all or folks out there on, on the campus, are looking for that meaning and significance in a lot of different ways, right? It might be, if I can be an important enough sort of person in my career or field, if I can break enough ground, if I can make a discovery, or if I can help people, if I can go into medicine and care for people and, and try to, you know, make people's lives better, then that will, that, will, that will help me. That will help me to sort of feel like I matter, or maybe it's like if I can get a job that's going to pay enough money that's going to be, enable me to kind of do the things that I want to do and, and provide for me the things that I feel like I need, maybe that's going to feel, make me feel uh, significant enough. How can we find significance in life? And even, but, but in situations where we might ha- be bored, have a boring job, or have a mundane sort of ordinary life, or, or perhaps even failure. What about when we fail, when we fall? When we don't achieve our goals, when we don't achieve our dreams, do we still matter? Do, are we still significant? And what I want you to see from this passage might seem like a roundabout way of getting to it, but what I want you to see in this passage is that because God created us, God created us, that you and I can have confidence in our God-given significance. And that might sound kind of like trite and silly, but I think it really, really matters. And it will, if you can get that into your hearts, it will be something that will enable you to withstand whatever circumstances that God calls you into. Because God created us, we can have confidence in God-given significance. There are two aspects, there are two ways that God made mankind that I want us to consider for that this evening. There are two kind of ways that God made us that are relevant when we think about our significance and our importance, our identity, however you want to put it. One is that God made us with limits. God made us with limits with limitations. And secondly, God made us as the peak or the pinnacle. God made us as the peak. So first, 
God made us with limits. This psalm starts out by magnifying and explaining the goodness and glory of God. There's two kind of refrains, verse 1 and verse 9, that are repeated, with two stanzas, two verses in between. Uh, the psalmist starts out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice uh, some of your translations might have the first Lord all capitalized, and the second one is just capital L-O-R-D. Um, that's because he's using two different names of God. O Yahweh, O Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yahweh is God's like personal, personal sort of first name, if you will. Adonai is basically is a direct translation for Lord. Um, and what he's saying is God is powerful and glorious. His name is majestic in all the earth. Later in, in verse 1, it says, You have set your glory above the heavens. Right? His glory is so powerful, so mighty, so weighty, that it's not just right, like in the heavens, it's above them. It's outside of them. It encompasses them. And, and it's above the earth as well. It's as magnificent and as glorious as like the things that we perceive in this world that we say, man, that is, that is a beautiful, glorious, wonderful thing. God's glory and his majesty is infinitely more. He's infinitely more glorious, he's infinitely more powerful, and he's infinitely more significant. The psalm actually goes on to say he's so powerful, he's so glorious, that he can establish strength out of the mouth of babies and infants. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So it's not just stating that he is powerful and glorious, but there's a comparison. There's a, a way of an analogy. Like no matter, however strong God is, he's so strong that he can even use things in this world that are weak and pitiful, that are powerless, like babies and infants, to do great things, to do the things that he wants to accomplish, to defeat his enemies, to defeat and protect uh, those who would, to defeat his enemies and protect those who would threaten his people. Even the most unexpected and foolish ways, if blessed and ordained by God, can bring about God's chosen plan because of how powerful and glorious he is. Two quick examples. One, um, think about David and Goliath, right? Um, David is a teenage boy who is literally kind of when the, the battle against Goliath starts, he's stooped over in a river looking for a few stones. He doesn't have any armor. He doesn't have any weaponry. And Goliath is this like 10 foot tall ish, you know, elite warrior with head to toe armor and a huge sword and a huge spear. And God uses David, this shrimpy child to defeat him. Or, right, think about um, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's a story of God, how God establishes his church and it starts a movement that revolutionizes the entire world. And the method that God has appointed for his disciples to go and to, like, do that is basically to, like, read from this book and say, hey, I'm just going to read this book and you should do things based on it. Um, if I was to come up with a plan for how to revolutionize the world, I would not say, hey, just read a book at people. It seems foolish to the world. It seems weak and crazy. But because if God is at work, because he is powerful enough, he's glorious enough, out of the mouth and babies and infants, you, God, have established strength because of your foes. What the world calls, what we might, by common sense, think of as weak and pitiful are things that in God's economy can be quite powerful, that can be glorious. And that is because he is infinitely so. He's infinitely glorious. And the psalmist actually goes on to compare mankind with God. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, 
which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Right? He looks at all of the glory of creation. And he, he, he has in his mind, right, like God is infinitely more glorious than you know, the stars or the mountains, the beauty of nature. And he says, what, why do you care about us, God? We are just creatures of dust. We are pitiful. We are weak. What is man that you are mindful of him? The, the word mindful, it's not just that God's thinking about them, but thinking about them with care and love. What is man that you love him? What is the son of man that you love him? And this is something that you and I, I think, should be aware of as we think about, like, the meaning of our lives. The bigness and gloriousness of God in comparison to us. God is infinite. He's unlimited. He's immortal. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He's outside of this world. He is other. He's different than us. God made us as finite, limited, and mortal beings. And what I want you to think about is this. The role of human beings in creation, that the purposes of your lives cannot really be understood apart from understanding God, apart from a correct understanding of God. Uh, a pastor from the, the 15, 1600s, named John Calvin, said this. He said, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. This psalm is saying something significant about God and about us, that he is not like us. He is infinite, eternal. He does not change. He is absolute. He is objective, eternal. Good, uh, he, his goodness does not change. His glory does not change. His truth does not change. He's infinitely and eternally all of these things. Infinitely, eternally wise, merciful, just, true, beautiful, and good. And this God is mindful of us. This God thinks about us. This God regards us with love. This God cares for us. He thinks about us. If all this is true, right, like, the, here's, here's kind of where, where, why this matters for us as we think about, like, the meaning of lives and, and significance. It means that you are not responsible for creating your own significance. You're not responsible for justifying your existence. You're not responsible, like, when you get up in the morning, it is good that you are alive because God loves you. It is good that you are a student here at Georgia Southern, not because you have to, like, prove something. You don't have to prove it to anyone. Because God cares for you. You were not built to justify your own existence. You were not built to create and establish your own significance. We're not responsible for creating our own meaning. Because if we belong to God, which is what this passage is saying, by virtue of his creating us, or, right, we belong to God by, by virtue of his purchasing out of sin by the blood of his son. We are not responsible for creating the meaning in our own lives, which is something that I think the world is trying to convince y'all that you have to do. If you're not super satisfied with your job, if you're not excited about the calling that you have, if you're not having a good time, right, like there's something wrong. And a lot of times the way that our world and social media talks about these kinds of things is, it implies that it's on you or it's on other people who aren't accommodating you. Um, there was a French philosopher in the 20th century named Albert Camus, and he, he writes a sort of like modern story retelling of a Greek myth uh, called the myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was this Greek king, um, and the myth, right, the, the sort of Greek mytho mythological tradition goes that um, Sisyphus was trying to uh, basically try to cheat death 
And Zeus found out, and Zeus punishes him by having him infinitely and eternally roll a boulder up a hill forever. Camus writes, but every time, as he was about to send it toppling over the crest, get it up to the top of the hill, its sheer weight turned back. And once more, again, towards the plain, the pitiless rock rolled down. So once more, Sisyphus had to wrestle with the thing and push it up, while the sweat poured from his limbs and the dust rose high above his head. A never-ending struggle, right? That's what, that's what Camus is describing here. A never-ending struggle, just like the never-ending struggle for meaning and significance, right? You get the internship and you're like, okay, I got to get the next thing. You have that, a good, group, good experience with a group of friends and you're like, man, I, I want to get closer with them. You think you achieve one level and you're like, I got to get to the next one. Camus continues, he says, the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. What he's saying there is basically, he's an atheist, right? So in a world without God, to create our own meaning, when we're always striving for the next thing, we have to pretend like the journey is fun. We have to pretend like the struggle to find happiness and fulfillment and significance in this life is enough for us. There's not really a philosophical or logical argument for that. He just asks and pleads, like, please imagine that Sisyphus is happy. Like, please be happy as you struggle and yearn towards this thing. And, like, I think y'all can feel the futility of that. I, I certainly can. Like, like, there is something else out there for us. There's something that is better for us. It is not within mankind to satisfy man. Our hearts long for something else, for resting in something greater than ourselves. St. Augustine, who is a, a pastor in the, like, three or four hundreds, he, he wrote, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, talking about God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, Lord Jesus. So if this is true, right, if God has made us to need rest, if God has made us as limited, finite beings who are not capable, who are not equipped to create our own meaning, to create our own significance, to ensure and guarantee that we're satisfied in everything that we do, then rest from trying to come up with that on your own. Like, don't buy into the myth that you can have it all. That if you just work hard enough, if you give enough of yourself, if you study hard enough, if you, if you give yourself to enough friend groups that you will feel satisfied in those things. Don't buy into the myth that worldly things can fill a void that only God can fill in your hearts. Rest from that. Rest from trying to come up with your own significance. Rest in what God says about you. Right? This psalm is a song for you. And you can pray it to God and sing it. And, and, and like let that shape your heart. Let, let that open your eyes to the beauty and majesty of the world that God has made. And know that God is infinitely loving and giving. And that he has created these things not out of necessity and not to, because he's getting something out of it, but because he out of, like, loves us and has joy over us. This world and your lives are gifts. I think this also calls us to contextualize the things that you're going through contextualize like in the big picture right the problems that we have and compare them with god's glory and his power and so like whatever you're going through whether it's good times or bad times ask god to remind you of his love for you and the fact that he regards you he promises to do it because he loves and cherishes and values mankind more than anything else in creation which brings me to point number two that god made us as the peak 
My little brother uses that term a lot. He's a junior in college, and he says, oh, this is peak. I don't know if any of you guys say that. but um, He made me watch an anime called Vinland Saga, and he's like, he calls it Peakland Saga because it's his favorite show. But anyway, that's a tangent. God has made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings, it says in verse uh, 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some of y'all's translations, it might say angels. Um, I, don't, I actually think, I mean, they're all like okay translations. This is one of those places where there's actually, a, could potentially be some differences in meaning of scripture. There's, there's not a lot of those places, but depending on the translation, like this might have an impact. Because the Hebrew word here that's translated as heavenly beings or angels is Elohim. Um, Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. It can mean angels, it can mean heavenly sort of spiritual beings, but the most common use of it in the Old Testament is God. And this is true, right? Like, you have made mankind a little lower than God. That's what happens, that's what we see in the creation story. We see mankind alone of all of creation in Genesis 1. It's stated that God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He made mankind in his image. Nothing else in creation can say that. No angels, no nothing in the natural world, no animals, nothing else. It makes humans absolutely unique in everything. We are made in God's image. Both men as men and women as women are made in the image of God as in the imprint of his being and character and receive attributes from God. There's a sense that as God created us, we are like God. We're not God, right? We're not divine. There's certain parts of his attributes and his being that we don't get. But in many ways, we are like God. Even the angels are not made in the image of God. And so there's a sense of, as beings made in his image, we are closer to him than anything else. Furthermore, in Genesis, it says that God gave mankind dominion over all the creatures of the earth, both in being and function, both in sort of the way that he made us and what he calls us to do. God has elevated mankind over all of the rest of creation. We see that also in this psalm. You've given him, mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Mankind is the peak. It's the pinnacle, it's the top, according to God. Like, think about that. Imagine the world. Think about all its wonders. Like, think about all of the beauties that y'all have seen in this world. What this psalm is saying is that according to God, he thinks that you're more precious. He thinks you're more majestic and more beautiful. He thinks you're more glorious. He loves you more dearly than anything else in creation. God has set us as overseers and stewards of creation. Right? In, in, in Genesis, he gives Adam a job. He says, hey, I'm going to put you in the garden. Your job is going to be to cultivate it. And in the context, right, when we think of cultivating, we just think of maybe growing crops. But it means to make it better, to make the garden more beautiful and fruitful and glorious. And so that means, right, like that, that, that mission continues, that we ought to care about that about making the world more beautiful. He's given the world to us as something to steward and care for, which, you know, as a tangent, that, that means we probably ought to care about the environment. And, like, we probably shouldn't want to litter. That's a tangent. That's not really the main point here. Um, but, but it means that whatever you do, you do it as someone who is bearing the image of God. And that is a beautiful and good thing, and it gives meaning and significance to whatever job that you end up doing. But it's also kind of a scary thing. 
not scary, but it's, it's an intimidating thing. It's a weighty thing. It gives new context to the third commandment, which is you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Right? You shall not bear the image of God in vain. And if you do, right, that is incurring guilt for sin before him. And the bad news is that we all fail at this. We all bear the image of God, but we have brought it into disrepute because of our sin. We have besmirched God's name and character and his image because we hurt people, we disrespect the natural world, and we disrespect God. And yet God is at work redeeming his people. And if you believe in Jesus and you ask God for forgiveness for your sins, he will redeem and restore the image of God to its perfect glory in you. And so if these things are true, right, then whatever it is that you're doing, that in itself is significant. Like, y'all being students here, that matters. Even if it's a core class that you're going to be here for, you know, you're never going to take this class again. You're, you're taking history of Greek art, and you're, you don't care about that, and you're never going to take it again. Like, it still matters what you do in that class. Not that you need to try as hard as a major class, but because God is glorified when you're faithful. God is glorified when you show up. God is glorified when you are respectful and kind to people around you. And he has called you into this situation right now. God gives meaning and love to your labor. He loves you and he loves the things you do. Imagine this. It's like uh, when, when a toddler like scribbles a drawing. You know, it's supposed to be a horse, but it's just like a bunch of, you know, chicken scratch on a piece of paper. And he runs in and he brings it to his dad. And his dad is like, wow, this is great. It's going on the fridge. That's how God loves the things that you do. That's how God loves the labors that you endure. And so if this is true, then you should be encouraged. Whatever it is that you're doing, right, whether you are a student or in the future, right, whether, whether you go into work for ministry or you become a doctor or you're a teacher or you just go and work for a bank or if you're a construction worker or a farmer or whatever vocation you have, God is pleased and glorified when you do it faithfully and do it well. You can glorify God just as much as you when you hammer nails into you know, a, a beam of a house as when you preach on a Sunday morning. God is just as glorified as when you teach the, the, the rowdy you know, group of kindergartners as when you perform life-saving surgery. He is just as glorified and he is pleased. Your labor is not in vain. What you do really matters. That's what this psalm is saying. God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. And it's not because we've earned it. It's because he loves us and because he's created us in a particular way. Right? You do not give it significance on your own. The significance of your job or of your labor, it doesn't come from you trying hard enough. It comes from God loving you and loving you like a child. And therefore it matters. Because God pours out his love on his children, it is made significant. You can be faithful in a boring job. You can be faithful in a tedious class that doesn't feel like it matters. You can be faithful and kind in difficult relationships. You can be faithful and kind in difficult friendships because you are made in God's image and he is glorified when you are faithful. Martin Luther has a quote about like, uh, he was a, also a pastor around the same time as John Calvin. Um, he, has, he has this quote, he, he's talking about and describing what it means to work as a Christian. He says, the, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. 
Not because she might sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Whatever God has called you to in this season, he has called you to do it faithfully and well. And you can do it not by your own efforts and labors, although you should spend those things on what God has called you to, but because he loves you. He's called you to faithfulness, not perfection. He's called you to rest, not ceaseless work and toil. So know in wisdom when to labor faithfully and when to rest. I think maybe a good rule of thumb is if if your job, if your work is causing you to neglect the joy of your salvation in the Lord or to neglect being with God's people, maybe that is a sign that it's time for you to rest from it. God is our Father and he loves us. Right? And of course, that is only true for those of you who know and have put your trust in Jesus. That's actually not true for those of us who, who may not know him. God works through us, but, but in those he has brought to himself through Jesus alone. And the offer is open to all of you. For any of you, and for any of you, your friends, right? For those who would receive Jesus, for those who would come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, God receives them as children as well. He is at work redeeming you and sanctifying you, not just your souls, but also your labor and your work and your vocation. He is glorious and righteous and powerful enough to do it. And the reason that he could do that with us specifically, even though we are wicked sinners, is because 2,000 years ago a child was born. And out of the mouth of this child would come words that God would use to establish strength and to destroy his enemies to destroy and to still the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouth of this child, out of this son, would eventually come the words, it is finished. When he went to the cross and he died, taking the penalty for our sins upon himself. God, right, this psalm foretells out of the mouth of babies and infants, there's one particular infant who would come, who would save and deliver God's people. At the cross, Jesus won for us our forgiveness by his death and won for us eternal life by his sacrifice and his resurrection. Our significance, our meaning, our value is secure in him, even when we might not feel it. Let's pray.